0: Thinking that they are cool now, but whether they're cool or not, I've been just been chomping at the bit since the '90s for the next time to pounce on, you know, some good turtleneck action. So here we are. Your your nerdy your nerdy pastors are are, are here for you. So anyway, it's good to see every. What's that? Do you have a in your trunk? <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> That is probably why they got popular in the '90s, though. I hadn't thought of that until you said that. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the '60s too. The '60s too. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's pray as we begin. <laughs> Father, we 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 love you, and I I just thank you for this group that's gathered here today, and. And, uh, and, man, we're just blessed to gather in your name. We thank you that we can still freely do that. And I pray, God, that it would be a time in which your name is glorified in our midst and that you're honored and that you're pleased and that we're all just going to approach this morning uh, with soft hearts. Whatever you show us, God, I pray we would approach that with the answer yes before we even hear it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to chapter 4. We'll be there. We're about halfway through chapter 4. And and, and what's gone on so far in the first three chapters of the book is is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the, the authors of the book, they're recapping what's already happened in the past. That's what's going on for these first what, that's what was going on in these first three chapters, and, and as we've been seeing, as they describe how the Thessalonians came to faith in the past, and, they, and how the Thessalonians' lives were radically changed after their salvation, and and, and how we, we saw how uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, led them to faith, and how they discipled them. And what we've been seeing is in the midst of that, and what we've realized is there's just an unbelievable amount that we can glean from these ch- three chapters as they just go over the past and just tell us what's gone on so far in the past in their relationship with the Thessalonians but but what was happening was is that Paul Silas and Timothy were have essentially in those first three chapters what they've been doing is they've just basically been taking us down memory lane they they were they were recapping events but but as we entered chapter 4 Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're no longer recapping events anymore. They're admonishing the Thessalonians, and they're persuading them, and they're encouraging them towards righteousness. There are some things that they want to make sure that the church of the Thessalonians understand. There are some things they want to be sure that they apply to their lives. There are some things they want to make sure that they're never too far removed from. And so over the last couple weeks, as we've been in chapter 4, we've seen what some of those things are. And as we begin this morning, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're continuing to do just that. They're still encouraging the, Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians. They're still encouraging them toward righteousness. And what I'd like for us to see as we begin this morning is, number one in your study sheet, it's, it's how God taught us to love. How God taught us to love. We, we, we finished verse eight of chapter four last week, and we're going to begin with verse nine this week. First Thessalonians chapter four in verse nine, it says, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And, and so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're They're talking about the fact here, as as far as this thing of brotherly love goes, that it's really not even necessary that they write to the Thessalonians about it because God has already taught them everything that they could possibly need to know about loving each other. And, And so we just have to ask ourselves as we're studying this book and as we're reading along in this book, So so that we're sure that our lives are characterized by having brotherly love. We have to ask ourselves, what is it exactly that God has taught us about loving one another? Paul, Silas and Timothy say it's really not even necessary to even write about brotherly love because God taught us everything we need to know. All right, then what what was it then that God taught us? And and as we begin looking at that, let me just remind us of something. We talked last week about how this passage has taught us to not defraud or not to wrong our brothers and sisters. But what I want to remind us of as believers in Jesus Christ, it's not just enough to not defraud our brothers and sisters. Verse 9 says we've been called To love our brothers and sisters and that that is something that we're taught of God to do It it isn't just that we're not to defraud We're to love And and God has taught us how to do just that Jesus says it like this in John chapter 13 and verse 34 He says a new commandment I give unto you That ye love one another How should we do that? As I have loved you that ye also love one another. Jesus taught us how to love one another. He just didn't just haul off and tell us, hey, you should love. No, he showed us how, and then he commanded us to do it the same exact way that he did it towards us. And and, and when we look at how it was that, that God showed us love, man, it's hard to disconnect it from this thing of giving. And I'm glad Corey used that line that he used because I was already planning on saying this before he used it. But like you've heard Corey say, you're never more like God than when you're giving. So, so I want us to look at how God the Father gave, how God the Son gave, and how God the Holy Spirit gave to help us get a firm grasp on how it is that God taught us to have brotherly love. And, and so letter A... God the Father gave His Son. God the Father gave His Son. And, and that's going to bring us to the, to the most popular verse in the entire Bible. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish... But have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world and gave him as a sacrifice for the world. And I think when we read those verses, our focus is typically on Jesus' death. And his love for us. Now that is certainly a key part of this verse. But what gets forgotten in this popular verse. And what takes this thing to a whole nother level. Is when you understand it from the father's perspective. Right. We tend to view it through the lens of the son. And we think about all Jesus went through when he died. And we think about the way that he loves us. But this verse, have you ever noticed, it's actually written from the perspective of the father. God the father gave his son, but we don't typically read it through the eyes of the father. And and I think that maybe when we hear the story of Abraham and Isaac, we're we're maybe more inclined to hear it through the eyes of a a father. The, The story of Abraham and Isaac, man, it's one of the most vivid pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but it also pictures the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And you know, and you know the story. Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his only son. In Genesis 22-2, God tells Abraham, and he said, Now take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And there are all kinds of incredible parallels that we see in this story. Like like we just saw, it was the father's only begotten son that he loved that was to be the sacrifice. Just like Jesus, ultimately what happens is, is, just like Jesus, Isaac walks to the place of sacrifice, carrying the wood that was to be used for his own execution. And in the same, in that place that he was to be sacrificed is the same place where Jesus was ultimately sacrificed and crucified. And that's just to give you a few but I remind you of that story because when we hear that story, that it, it, that it pictures the, the future crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we have the tendency in this story to put ourselves in the shoes of the Father, don't we? You, you can't help but read that story and envision how absolutely horrifying it would be to have to sacrifice your only son. Now, it would be horrible to be the sacrifice too, But we tend to view this story from the lens of the father because it would be worse to be the father in this story. You see, when we read John 3, 16, we read it through the lens of the son and when we and what Jesus went through when he died for us. But when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac from Genesis 22, we read that one through the lens of the father. It's the same story. And I bring up Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, because I'm trying to get you to see this through the lens of the Father. That's actually that perspective John 3.16 is written from. The Father sacrificing His only Son because He loves us. And what takes this thing to an even another level is when you understand just how beautiful of a love relationship that the Father and the Son have. We, we, we talk a lot about God's love for us, the, the church. But we rarely, if ever, consider God's love for His only begotten Son. And, and to really understand the, the significance of that love, we need to understand what the Bible teaches us in regards to His plan, in regards to His kingdom. What the Bible teaches us about God's plan regarding His kingdom. And what we need to do is we need to look at all of that to understand how beautiful and how wonderful this relationship of the Father and the Son really is. And where that would lead us is is the book of Ephesians, where we see God actually describing to us what happened in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world is how he says it. Before there was time God looked forward to what had not yet been created. He he looked forward in time to a particular group of people that would live at a particular point in time, a group of people that he would call the church, the church of Jesus Christ, that's us. And, and, And you know what that group of people actually is when you put it into the context of the Word of God? This thing of the church is is something that God the Father was looking forward in time towards for a very specific purpose. What he wanted to do was give his son a love offering from his heart. And what he did was he he looked forward in time to a group of people that he would call the church. And a people that would be comprised of, of every kindred and tribe and people and nation before there was a kindred, tribe, people, or nation. He'd already planned out, I'm going to call out from every people group in the world a people to offer to my son as a love gift from my heart. And again, we talk about the church, and we get enamored with this incredible love story of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and the way he loved us. According to Ephesians five twenty five. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. And man, we should get enamored with that story. But it's not to compare to this love story of this gift that the father had in his heart that he wanted to give to his son. And what God the father did was he he exalted the son and he made him Lord and he made him king. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 You see that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and King. And he, he, that, day it, that day is coming, y'all. And because of God the Father's love for the Son, like the end of verse 11 says, that will glorify the Father. Yeah, and the thing that's just so incredible, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24... Do you know where this thing all ends? 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Where this thing all ends. The, The Father presents the love gift of the kingdom to the Son. And you know what the Son does with it? He offers it back as a love gift to the Father. Jesus is going to sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem in the millennium, and he will rule and reign. And when the millennium is over, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then cometh the end, when he, that's Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. Verse 28, And when all all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Like verse 28, of Ephesians, like, like Ephesians 1.22 says that God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. And like verse 27 says, that kingdom that was given to the Son will be given back to the Father at the end of the millennium. And for every person that names the name of Jesus Christ in this room, we're a part of that kingdom. God views you as so special that He sees you as a part of a group of people called the church that will one day be offered to the Son, who will in return offer us back to the Father. And as unbelievable as that is, and as much of a privilege as that is for us, have you ever considered the beauty of the relationship between the father and the son? You see, the more beautiful the relationship of a father and a son, the more difficult it is to do what the father did. And that's how God taught us to love. He taught us us to give, and not just to give, but to be willing to give of that that we hold most dear. Now listen, I understand that that God is probably not going to call us to sacrifice our children's lives out of love for our brothers and our sisters. That's probably not going to happen, but I think it's important that we see the level to which God teaches us to love because he does ask us to give of those things that are important to us in the name of loving our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3, 17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Showing love may not cost us our, our kids, but it, it may cost us other things that have value. God's asking us here in 1 John three seventeen, How is it that you're following the example of, that God set when he taught us to love, if God has blessed you with money and food or whatever it may be, and you're unwilling to help a brother or sister in need. In, in, In fact, our love has never really even been tested if we've never had to give of what we love and care about. God the Father teaches us to give, and to give even when we're giving of what is of the utmost value to us. So that's how God the Father has taught us to love. But there's a way that God the Son has taught us to love as well. Let it be. God the Son gave His life. God the Son gave His life. 1 John 3.16 It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how Jesus, God the Son, that's how he taught us to love. He laid down his life for us. And that is to be celebrated. That's something that we should stand in awe of, that Jesus would lay down his life for us. But while we celebrate that and while we stand in awe of that, we can't forget how this verse ends. It ends by teaching us that as a result of Jesus laying his life down for us. It's now given us a responsibility. And that responsibility is that we're now to follow Jesus' example. And lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's how we've been taught to love. And I know we love to bask in the reality of Jesus' love for us on the the cross. And how he gave his life for us. But man, it's just so easy to check out when it comes to this thing of loving others the same way that he loved us. Can't we just celebrate his love for us this morning and go on our merry little way and watch some of the NFL playoffs? Can't we just do that? No, we can't, because when Jesus died for us, one of the things he was accomplishing was he was teaching us how to love, and he's calling us to love like that. The Bible says it like this in 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. John 15, verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And again, I realize it's unlikely that any of us will be called to physically die for our brothers and sisters. But if you were, is there anyone that doesn't share your last name that you love like that? That's how God called us to love. How about this? Are you willing to die to yourself for your brothers and sisters? It's similar to what we talked about last week when when we're studying how to respond when we've been wronged or defrauded. It's similar to that. Are we willing to die to self and suffer wrong at the hands of our brothers and sisters if it means showing God's love to them? How about this? Are Are we willing to give of our time to minister to and disciple our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to love those that are hard to love Or those that could maybe be considered undeserving of love? Aren't you glad that God loved us when we were undeserving of it? You realize that if God waited for us to be deserving of love before He showed us His love, that God would have never loved us? Because we'll never be deserving of the love that He's shown to us. But by God's grace and His mercy, He did... We looked at these verses a couple weeks ago, but it is so important that we understand this from Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 6. It says that when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Would you look at that? God, he, Jesus shows us his love when we were without strength, when we were ungodly. When we were sinners and enemies. And that's how God the Son teaches us to love. Not just those that are lovable. Not just those that are easy to love or those that love us. Even our enemies that sin against us. Jesus teaches us we show our love by the giving of and laying down of our lives. We do it by dying to ourselves to show our brothers and sisters love just like Jesus so graciously did for us. That's brotherly love. So, so we've seen how God the Father shows, shows us uh, taught us to love by giving, even of that which is most valuable. We've seen how God the Son taught us to love by giving of ourselves or, our, or of our lives. Now let's look at how God the Holy Spirit taught us to love by giving. Let us see God the Holy Spirit gave his nature. God the Holy Spirit taught us when he gave his nature. One of the places that we learn this is from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Would you look at it with me? It says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust We're partakers of the divine nature Y'all because when we got saved We were placed in god and the holy spirit which contains god's divine nature was placed in us and because now we're Born again, and according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, now we're a new creature. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creature. All things have become new, and that includes our nature. We have a new nature now. Our our old man or our old nature, our sin nature that's trapped in our flesh. Listen, it's still there. But now we have a new nature because the Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside of us. So now we have God's nature. Do you realize that? That's a crazy thought, isn't it? We have God's nature now. And do you know what his nature is? According to 1 John 4, 8, it teaches us that God is love. That's his nature. He is love. Love is part of his essential nature. If God ceased to love, then he would cease to exist because God is love. And now God has given us his nature. We're a new creature now. Now again, that that new creature or that new man is in a daily knockdown drag out with the old man that's still trapped in this flesh, and that's why we fall short so much. But, but now we've got the ability to be able to love how God loves because we have His nature and because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And, and do you realize that the Holy Spirit has literally poured out God's love in our hearts? Romans 5.5 5 teaches us that. It, it, it says... That the love of god is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy ghost Which is given unto us. You see that's why god's expectations for us are so high Because he's taught us to love to the degree that he's put the holy spirit inside of us He's made us new creatures. He's made us partakers of his divine nature and he put his love inside of our hearts so God's expectations are understandably high. It's why 1 John 4 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Loving is just something that those that are born of God do. You know, wouldn't it be cool if if God gave like some sort of special marking or badge or or tattoo or some sort of identifiable marking that would that would just show everybody who's who. God, you know, just show everybody who the true believers are and give us an identifiable mark that we can do that. God's saying, I've already got that. Right. Right. You can tell by how they love. That's how. Jesus says in in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's the identifiable marking. That's how you know who's who. By our love. That's our new nature now. We have God's nature, and he put his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the nature of a fish is to swim. They didn't go to school for that. They may travel in schools, but they didn't go to school for that. Dad jokes abound in this (laughs) pulpit. (laughs) The nature of a bird is to fly. They didn't go to school to learn how to fly. It's in their nature. And God is showing us, not only have I taught you to love by my example, I've even given you a new nature. It's a divine nature, and that new nature is to love. The divine nature of a Christian is to love. So so like we've been seeing, God's taught us how to love one another, and, and he's taught us by how he gave. God the Father taught us by giving of that which is most valuable. God the Son taught us by giving his own life, and God the Holy Spirit taught us, by giving us his divine nature and and shedding his love abroad in our hearts. And then as we continue reading 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that next God shows us, number two, how they were commended and exhorted. How they were commended and exhorted. They they were commended on something, and they were exhorted and and encouraged to do it even more. And, And of course that something was love. In First Thessalonians 4.10, in, in reference to brotherly love, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. And so letter A, we see that they were commended for their love. They were commended for their love. That's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are doing in the first half of verse 10 they're commending the Thessalonians saying all this brotherly love stuff that we've been talking about they're like man you guys are doing it right you are showing brotherly love towards those that are in Macedonia verse 10 says you know Macedonia is modern-day Greece it's the region that Thessalonica was located in so so the church of the Thessalonians they're they're being commended they're being complimented for the way that they've shown their love to their brothers and sisters in the region in which they live. They, they're, they're being complimented for the, for the ways that they've shown that. And, and we can kind of read that and, and just move on to the next verse and, and just kind of keep skimming. But have you ever thought about the impact that that must have had in their region we don't know exactly how many people got saved as a result of their testimony. But as we've seen in the past weeks, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.8, the word of the Lord sounded out from the church of the Thessalonians to Macedonia and Achaia and, and every place. Okay, So the word of the Lord, it's, it's sounding out of them. And according to what we just saw in chapter 4 and verse 10, the testimony of their lives is that they love. So they're talking the talk and they're walking the walk. Can you imagine the impact of what was going on in Thessalonica and around Macedonia at that time? It must have been incredible to be a part of that. Can you imagine if that was what characterized us in this church? What if it was us who the Word of God was sounding out from them toward all the people in our area while our lives were defined by and what we were known for was how we love. Wow, can you imagine the impact that we could still have in modern times if that was our reality? Listen, that's exactly what God is calling us to. This isn't a a pipe dream that only Paul could do. This is what we've been called to. He he didn't preserve the book of 1 Thessalonians for us, for some midnight reading material and bedtime stories. He preserved his words so we'd learn from it, so we'd apply it to our lives. The church of the Thessalonians are a great example to us, so much so that Paul, Silas, and Timothy can't help but commend the way that they love. And then, letter B, they were exhorted to love more. They were exhorted to love more, again, in in verse 10 of chapter 4, the second half of, uh, of it says that we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are just saying, man, keep increasing this love. You've got the love, but keep increasing it. In fact, they just mentioned something similar at the end of chapter 3 and verse 12. They had just said, hey, increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Right. So so the church of the Thessalonians, they're 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 doing good in the love department. They are they're not they're not failing in this department so much so that they're actually getting complimented in the Bible. That's that that must be that must be something else. But listen, this thing of love, it's it's so important to God that that he's saying here for the second time in the book. Now that you love the way that you should. Keep going and keep increasing in that love more and more and more and never stop loving and never stop increasing in your love. We've already already mentioned this morning that loving should be for the Christian like swimming is to the fish so we can never get too far removed from loving our brothers and sisters. It's literally that fundamental to our faith. We can never get too far removed from the fundamentals, y'all. Listen, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I am a big sports fan. I I really enjoy a lot of them, especially basketball. That's kind of that's, uh, uh, that's my thing. I grew up in the Michael Jordan era, so that was that was my guy. But outside of him, my favorite player that I've ever watched. Wow. I know, I know. I mean, there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot more hate for this guy than there was for Michael Jordan. Is Steph Curry. That's my guy. Okay. So I I've gotten to see him play in person quite a few times, like, and we, you know, had a blast, watched him in the finals, we you know, all that. But if you ever go watch him play, there's something that you have to do, and that is you gotta get there just as soon as the doors are open, because there's just this mob of people that kind of storm in when the doors open for one of his games. Because they want to go down and watch him do his warm up. Okay, now I would be one of those people that is there, like, I want to go down and watch him do his warm ups. And, and they're amazing to watch, and he does, you know, makes half court shots. You know, he does this whole thing. It's this, big, it's this big show. But the main thing that he's actually doing in these warm ups that has everybody clamoring over themselves to, to watch him like the Beatles or something is that everyone is in a tizzy, and what he's actually doing is. The fundamentals. That's actually what he's doing in these drills. He's, you guys remember, you guys remember the ball handling drills? You know, he's bu, 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 two balls at once, boom, boom, bu, boom, crossing and boom, boom, bu, He's doing the figure eight. You know, he's doing, yeah, that's right. He's doing, he's doing all the stuff that are the fundamental things, the fundamental ball handling drills that anybody that's played basketball has done that you're taught as kids. You see, you can never get too far removed from the basics and the fundamentals No matter how good you get because it always comes back to that It always comes back to the fundamentals. That's how it works in every facet of life That's how it works in the christian life You can never get too far removed from the basic fundamental call on our lives to love our brothers and sisters And the key is you just keep getting better and better at the fundamentals That's what you do. You just keep getting better and better at the fundamentals because man when you're not striving to move forward in the fundamentals, and grow stronger in your love, and you're complacent, you know what happens? You don't stay in the same place, do you? No, you you, you move backward, is what actually happens. And and I don't have the time to show you this biblical principle this morning, but the pr- principle is, biblically, complacency leads to compromise. Listen, we've got to keep moving forward forward we are running a race we can't stop now because the race doesn't end until either we die or jesus comes back one of the two so the church of the thessalonians they're commended on their love they're exhorted to love more and and then next paul silas and timothy showed them number three how to walk honestly and lack nothing how to walk honestly and lack nothing 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12, it says, In that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about some of the ways that the Bible teaches us that we're to Walk. And I knew we weren't going to get to all of those ways, but I left this one out on purpose because I knew we were going to get there in a couple of weeks. But one of the ways we've been called to walk is to walk honestly towards them that are without and that we have lack of nothing or that we don't need anything. And, and, and the way we're to accomplish that is by studying to be quiet, doing our own business, and working with our own hands. Now, at a glance, that's kind of a confusing verse, I think, and, and it also seems to be contradictory to the Great Commission. If I'm going to go into all the world and preach the gospel and train up others to do the same, then how am I supposed to do that if this verse is telling me that I'm to be quiet and to mind my own business, right? I mean, that, but, but what we see, you know, especially as we compare Scripture with Scripture, is that this isn't at all what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are trying to convey, God still very much wants our lives to revolve around the Great Commission. And, and when God says that, that we should do our own business and, and work with our own hands so we can walk honestly towards unbelievers and not lack anything, one of the things that he's actually teaching us is, is he's teaching us about working. He, he, we need to work. That's letter A. He's teaching us that we need to work. Okay. God's teaching us about working. He's teaching us about handling finances. He's saying we need to be working so that we don't end up in need and lack the essentials. Because when we're in need, we're prone to not walk honestly towards those that are without or towards those that don't believe because we got to hit them up to help us out. God's saying, listen... It's going to be counterproductive to have to hit those you're supposed to be witnessing to up to borrow money from them because you won't work. He's saying we need to make sure we can be a testimony in that regard to the lost world. And listen, man, most of us have all had hard times. We've all been in between jobs. We've all been young. We've all been strapped for cash. I get it. But what God's wanting to show us is, is that we're to be working we're to be working for the sake of those that don't believe. God wants us to have a hold on those things so that we're not a burden to them and so we can walk honestly toward them. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 12 says something similar about walking honestly. It says, "...having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers..." They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We need to walk honestly towards those that don't believe. And the, one of the ways that we do that is by working and having our affairs in order. Romans 13.8 teaches us that we're to owe no man anything but to love one another. Here's what we should owe each other instead of money. Love. You owe each other that. That's what we owe each other is is love. I get it. Extenuating circumstances, I'm not saying that, but we are to be working. That was part of what was going on in this time. People weren't working. The next thing we're to do to walk honestly towards those that don't believe is letter B. We need to not be busybodies. We need to not be (laughs) busybodies. A busybody is somebody that's getting into everybody's business. They're, they're, they're talking to others about somebody else's business. And we're going to see that, that not working and being busybodies, it goes hand in hand according to the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it goes as far as to say this. For, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work... Neither should he eat. Okay, that's pretty strong. God wants us to work. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all. See, this is the type of stuff that was going on. And here's what I want you to see. But our busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And of course we see this Similar theme in these verses as we did verses 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Both passages reference quietness, eating your own bread, working with your own hands, and doing your own business. And what both of these passages are showing us is if you're not working and you're not taking care of your responsibilities, what inevitably ends up happening is you end up finding something to do with that time that's on your hands. And what you find to do with that time is, is, is commonly talking about other people's business and their affairs and talking about everybody else. And so when these passages talk about quietness and studying and laboring to be quiet, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be out sharing the gospel, <laughs> It means that when we're taking care of our responsibilities and and we live quiet and peaceable lives that aren't filled with drama because we're too busy to get into other people's business. That's what he's talking about. We need to be too busy to be messing with other people's business that's not our place. You you say, what about about me? I'm I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, man, that's great. I don't need to tell you that being a stay-at-home mom is a ton of work, and it might be the hardest job on the planet. So God's saying the, the biz, God's saying be busy taking care of that work and those responsibilities as the keeper at home to your family so there isn't time to be a busybody that's going around gossiping about others. It doesn't mean that we so be so busy with our work and with our family that we aren't even a part of each other's lives. No. What it means is, is that we're to be taken care of our business so we don't have the energy to step into other people's business and cause unnecessary drama. And, 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 and you know, I think God puts this thing of being a busybody in a lot worse category than we would probably imagine. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15 says it like this but, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief. That's horrible. Or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. (laughs) What Peter's saying in these verses is he's like, he's saying if you're going to suffer for being a Christian, well, man, that's that's great. But don't suffer for being these things. It's all right if you suffer for being a Christian. Okay, that's cool. But don't suffer for being like this. And he rattles off, oh, murderers, thieves, evildoers and busybodies, (laughs) right along with those horrible things. (laughs) Yikes. God really doesn't like those that go around causing drama in the body of Christ. You realize that? He really doesn't like that. And and it's interesting how God continuously connects this thing of not working and being a busybody in the Bible. You, You see, we weren't designed to sit around and do nothing. We weren't designed to be idle I don't mean, you know, lazy and not doing anything. Because again, here's what happens when we're idle, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13. Here's a principle that we learn. They learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also in busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. When you're idle, you just can't help but find the wrong things to do, and it usually involves drama we're causing with our mouths. And here's the thing. No matter if you're in between jobs, no matter if you're a stay-at-home mom, no matter if you're a non-working female with grown kids, no matter if you're a retired male, regardless of any of those things, you realize we still have work that we're to be doing Ephesians 4.12 talks about the work of the ministry. 2 Timothy 4.5 talks about the work of an evangelist. From the beginning of creation, y'all, we were created to work. As early as Genesis 2, God gave Adam work to do. And, And check this out. Do you realize that the work that God gave Adam to do in the garden was given to him before the fall? Do you realize that? It, it, it was before sin entered the world. You see, we usually think of work as being a part of the curse of sin. and We, we, we think that because of what we read in Genesis 3.17 where, where it talks about, in Genesis 3.17, where it talks about where it talks about cursed is the ground for thy sake and and it brought thorns and thistles and sweat and what god did what god actually did here in this chapter is is he made the work stink he made it be laborious he made it not be fun but work wasn't the curse it was that god cursed the work You see that work was a part of God's perfect plan for this world even before sin entered into the world And what i'm trying to make sure we see is is that God designed us to work from the beginning And so when we're not doing what we were designed to do We tend to find ourselves in trouble And and, and though we're all in different places of, of life as it relates to to work and a job We all have work to do the work of the ministry was never intended to be a spectator sport We haven't all been called to wear every hat that can be worn in a church We god didn't command that everyone should be a pastor. He didn't command that everyone should be a deacon He didn't command that everybody should play in the in the worship team But he commanded that we should all evangelize and we should all make disciples that work was given to every single one of us, and my prayer is that we do that. Father, we love you, and, and we're, 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 wanting to, we're wanting to honor you with our lives, God. Man, I pray that we would love the way that you've taught us to love, God. You taught us to love by the way that you acted, and you went as far as even giving us of your divine nature, which by your nature... Your nature is love, and I pray, God, that that would be the testimony of all of our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would be pleased in everything that we say. I pray you'd be pleased in everything that we do. I pray that we would always be sure, God, that we're a part of the work of the ministry. I pray that we would never find ourselves with idle hands getting into things we don't need to be getting into, God, but that we would find ourselves busy with what you've called us to do and the responsibilities you've given us. And we sure do love you. In your name, amen.